The following sermon audio is from The Source Church in Plainfield, Illinois. More information about The Source Church can be found at www.thesourcechurch.life. Good morning. Happy New Year. Let's gather around for the reading of God's Word. Today's scripture reading is coming from the book of Matthew, chapter 2, verse 13 to 23. Would you please stand and join me for the reading of his word? Thank you. Now when they had departed, behold, an angel of the Lord appeared to Joseph in a dream and said, Rise, take the child and his mother and flee to Egypt, and remain there until I tell you, for Herod is about to search for the child to destroy him. And he rose and took the child and his mother by night and departed to Egypt, and remained there until the death of Herod. This was to fulfill what the Lord had spoken by the prophet, Out of Egypt I called my son. Then Herod, when he saw that he had been tricked by the wise men, became furious, and he sent and killed all the male children in Bethlehem, and in all that region who were two years old or under, according to the time that he had ascertained from the wise men. Then was fulfilled what was spoken by the prophet Jeremiah. A voice was heard in Ramah, weeping in loud lamentation, Rachel weeping for her children. She refused to be comforted because there are no more. But when Herod died, behold, an angel of the Lord appeared in a dream to Joseph in Egypt, saying, Rise, take the child and his mother, and go to the land of Israel, for those who sought the child's life are dead. And he rose and took the child and his mother and went to the land of Israel. But when he heard that Archelaus was reigning over Judea in place of his father Herod, he was afraid to go there, and being warned in a dream, he withdrew to the district of Galilee. And he went and lived in a city called Nazareth so that when what was spoken by the prophets might be fulfilled, that he would be called a Nazarene. Thanks be to God. Good morning again. Let's start with prayer. Lord, this passage before us has, um, has an account of, of a really evil ruler. And so we want to pray... Uh, just as your word commands us, that, that uh, supplications and prayers and intercessions and thanksgiving be made for all people, for kings and for all who are in high positions, that we may lead a peaceful and quiet life, godly and dignified in every way. Lord, we do pray for our leaders. We pray for the mayor of Plainfield. We pray for the city councils around here. We pray for congressmen and, and state senators, Governor Pritzker. Also, our national leadership, um, President Biden and um, Vice President Harris, Senate, Congress, um, the Supreme Court, God, all of these figures who they may feel that they've risen to their station on their own merits, but we know that it is from your hand that you ordain all authority. And so, Lord, we pray for these individuals in all these positions. We ask that you would give them wisdom. We ask that um, where they are opposed to your ways, you would change them. You would get their attention. You would have mercy on them. Lord, we pray that they would have a high view of Christians. They would see our desire to be law-abiding citizens, the best of citizens, Lord, I pray that our lives would give our rulers no reason um, to despise the name of Jesus Christ. 
And so, Lord, we pray that you would give us favor in the eyes of our leaders. We ask that churches in this land would flourish. We ask that there would be religious liberty. And we pray that we would live peaceful and quiet lives, godly and dignified in every way. And Lord, as we approach this text this morning, I pray that you would use it powerfully in our midst. I pray that this church would be a place where people can say, the living God is there. That church is a pillar and buttress of truth. And we pray that for other churches in this town as well, Lord. Let there be many lights of your gospel in this place. So now help us as we turn to your word. Holy Spirit, be our true teacher today. We pray it in Christ's name. Amen. Happy New Year, everyone. Did you take the opportunity last week to dream of ways that you can press on to know Christ more? To respond to his love with an even fuller devotion? I hope you did. If, if not, well, I hope you'll reflect on that this week. There's nothing magical about January 1st, right? It's, it's just a landmark, but um, God's mercies are new every morning. And so it's never too late to change trajectories. Whatever's going on in your life, it's never too late to change. And if our hearts belong to God, then God is not hard to please either. He is pleased with us because of Christ, because we are in Christ, the Holy One. And so now... Any change that God asks of us, here's the thing. Whatever he asks of us, he will provide. It will be enabled by his grace as we walk with him. And so you can trust God in new ways at any time. And we do want to trust him more, right? Because as we're seeing in the gospel of Matthew, King Jesus rightfully has all authority over all nations. And so he deserves all of our allegiance. And his benevolent reign invites us in. We're meant to experience the peace and the joy and the rest of his realm. And so this morning, as we return to the Gospel of Matthew, to think about the rise of the cosmic king, we're going to see three short episodes. And I hope that that these vignettes are going to help you to see Jesus as trustworthy and to know his relevance to our own story. You know, we tend to gravitate toward leaders who we feel can relate to our experiences, right? That's why, for example, um, after World War II, the next eight presidents of the United States had all somehow served in the military in World War II because we respect leaders who understand our experiences. And that's, that's also why Princess Diana's death was such a big deal, right? Because through her warm communication and her acts of compassion, and even through her own experiences of suffering, she had earned the title of the people's princess. Well, we know from Hebrews 4 that we do not have a high priest who's unable to sympathize with our weaknesses, but one who in every respect has been tempted as we are yet without sin. So we know objectively he identifies with us. He he gets us. And the beauty of the Gospels, though, is that they don't just tell us that, that Jesus identifies with us. They show us that. And that, that scene of Jesus in action, identifying with us, that builds our trust in him. 
Now, we're still thinking about Jesus' early childhood at this point, so we're not going to hear any words of Jesus today. We're not going to see any miracles of Jesus, but we can still grow in our trust of him by seeing how God the Father orchestrated even Jesus' earliest experiences. God orchestrated it all to reveal Jesus as the answer to our common and our tragic human plight. So the main idea this morning is that Jesus identified with us. He identified with us in our terror and our turbulence so that in him we might find God's sovereign protection. Jesus identified with us in our terror and turbulence so that in him we might find God's sovereign protection. To start, verse 13, it picks up right after the magi, the wise men, had departed. They'd left for their own country by another way because they'd been warned in a dream not to return to Herod. If you notice, these first two chapters of Matthew are very heavy in supernatural dreams. There's five in total. So those details of dreams, that actually helps us to see that God the Father is orchestrating all of this. We're meant to notice the the sovereign guidance and protection throughout this passage. Don't miss that because the good news is that if that's how the Father cared for Jesus, then that's how the Father cares for us in Jesus. See, Jesus is the representative of a new humanity, and what's true of him is true of his people. Now, you may not have received dreams to warn you that your life was in danger, or, or maybe you have, I don't know. But God's sovereign care of his people is never in doubt. Maybe you need to hear that today. Maybe today you are in a scary situation because of a relational problem, or a financial problem, or medical problem, mental health problem, maybe even a crime problem. Well, the first thing I would say is to make sure that others know about that that you're not walking in that alone, but you're sharing that with brothers and sisters in Christ. The second thing I would say is you don't have to live in fear. If you're surrendered to him, Psalm 46 says, God is our refuge and strength, a very present help in trouble. Therefore, we will not fear, though the earth gives way, though the mountains be moved into the heart of the sea, though its waters roar and foam, though the mountains tremble at its swelling. And that fearlessness can be yours in Christ Jesus. And this passage helps us to explore why. We talked two weeks ago about how Herod the Great was a dangerous man. He had had his own wife, his favorite wife apparently, and uh, two sons killed just because he suspected treason from them. So Herod was known for other acts of shocking violence also. Whenever he felt threatened, that was his response. There's nothing shocking for us here about Herod seeking to kill the the Christ child. That's who Herod the Great was. So this warning from an angel, it certainly got Joseph's attention quickly, and they fled that very night. In the ancient world, traveling by night, that was crazy. You only did that if you, you absolutely had to. This risk-taking underlines the the urgency of the escape. They have to get out. And this would have been at least a week's journey, like 150 miles on foot. What an emotional roller coaster. Think about it. They'd just been visited by these exotic magi figures who fell down and worshipped Mary's child, and they had left these exquisite gifts, which instantly took care of any poverty problem that the family had. 
but then those very resources were immediately called for, right? Because they needed to fund an emergency journey and a refugee life in Egypt, at least until Joseph could find work. Now, Egypt was a good place to go if you had to run in those days. Uh, it was a well-ordered Roman province. It had a large Jewish population that Mary and Joseph could blend in with. Uh, in fact, the city of Alexandria apparently had um, it, one-third of its population was Jewish at that time. So they were able to safely remain there until the death of Herod the Great. But Matthew makes a point to show us that this time outside of Israel wasn't only about ensuring Jesus' safety. God was portraying something important. Verse 15 says, This was to fulfill what the Lord had spoken by the prophet. Out of Egypt I called my son. Now this is a quote from Hosea 11, and we need to ask, in what way does Jesus' time in Egypt fulfill this Old Testament passage? Because on the face of it, it doesn't even look like a prophecy. It's the start of a discussion about Israel's relationship to God in the time of Hosea. So it starts by saying, when Israel was a child, uh, I loved him, and out of Egypt I called my son. But then the chapter goes on to spell out how Israel had rejected God, and so now will be sent into exile in Assyria. But the chapter ends, Hosea 11, ends with promises that afterward, God will have mercy and gather them again. So how does any of this apply to the person of Jesus who was born 700 years after the exile to Assyria? What Matthew wants us to see here is the fulfillment of typology so these things happened in the past. People, places, things. They, they happened as something of their own, but they also happened as pointers to God's plans for the future. It's prophecy through event. So what's being fulfilled here isn't a specific prediction, but rather it's kind of the whole history of Israel. In Hosea 11, Israel is called God's son. He reminds them of his love that was demonstrated for them by rescuing them out of slavery in Egypt. And he promises that his love will one day rescue them also from exile. And Hosea isn't the only place where this son language is used. You remember in Exodus chapter 4, Moses was told to say to Pharaoh, Thus says Yahweh, Israel is my firstborn son. And I say to you, let my son go that he may serve me. Across the whole Bible, we see God repeatedly calling his son home after captivity or exile or slavery. So here in Matthew 2, Jesus' return from Egypt is another instance of that pattern in the unfolding of God's salvation. So Jesus is, in a sense, reliving the exodus. And what this is setting up for us is to see how throughout this whole gospel, Jesus is going to prove faithful where the nation of Israel has proved faithless. He is shown to recapitulate the whole history of the nation, but in the right way. He is true Israel. He is the truer son. Now, I'm not the best at graphics and such, so uh, just imagine this with me. Imagine a big hourglass. So you've got those two distinct sections, right? The sand flowing. We're going to call this hourglass the people of God. It's a picture of who is God's son, to whom belong God's promises and God's inheritance. And at the top of the hourglass, in that thick portion, we have ancient Israel. 
those who came out of Egypt and uh, entered into the Old Covenant at Mount Sinai. But then what happened? Centuries of disobedience, idolatry, and then in Hosea's day, the northern kingdom goes into exile, so that top chamber is growing more narrow, and then the southern kingdom goes into exile in Babylon, and then in, in the centuries before Jesus, you've just got this, like, righteous remnant that's, that's sort of dwindling down to those who actually remember the promises and, and, and look forward to the Messiah as he is in Scripture. People like Anna and, and Simeon in the Gospel of Luke. So it's getting narrower and narrower. And then here, right in the middle, is Jesus at the center of the hourglass. He is true Israel. He is the truest son And then from him expands out this lower chamber of the 12 disciples, of the 500 who saw him after his resurrection, of the 3,000 saved on the day of Pentecost. And then at the widest part of that lower chamber, we find ourselves in a mixed multitude of Jews and Gentiles from all times and nations with the promises and the gifts of God flowing down to us through Jesus. And what this means is that we who are in Christ by faith are also, in a sense, that true son. We are in the true son. And so we are children. If children, then heirs, heirs of God and fellow heirs with Christ. And so out of the land of slavery and idolatry, he calls us to know his love, to enter into new covenant, to enter into his blessing. So Jesus was sent to Egypt to signal the start of a new exodus out of the land of slavery to sin. Now, can you imagine how this time in Egypt must have impacted Joseph and Mary? They'd probably speak about it for years to come. They saw all the worldly wealth and power and idolatry that was in Egypt at that time, and they would have remembered the history of their people, how they were brought out miraculously 1,400 years earlier. And then they would think back to where they'd just come from in Bethlehem. They, they probably heard reports of what had happened. And they would have thought about the very fierce opposition from the powers of this world that still their child would have to face someday. Verse 16 says, Herod became furious and he sent and killed all the male children in Bethlehem and in all that region who were two years old or under according to the time that he had ascertained from the wise men. This is a shocking episode for us to digest, isn't it? In a small town like Bethlehem, somewhere between five and 20 baby boys killed. That's more than enough. Uh, And we know that this was perfectly within Herod's proven track record for violence. Again, we see a new Exodus theme playing out here. History is repeating itself. Because in Exodus chapter 1, the king of Egypt commanded that every son born to the Hebrews should be cast into the Nile. But Moses was rescued from that edict. And now here, Jesus is spared from the slaughter of the baby boys in Bethlehem. And we need to realize that the enemy of God's people isn't ultimately a certain Pharaoh or Herod the Great or Nero or Hitler or whoever's just around the corner. Behind them all is a more murderous tyrant yet, Satan himself. And he doesn't just use evil kings. He wields all the destructive forces of our society to cause senseless slaughter and heartache. 
But we live in a civilization that desperately wants to deny the reality of that evil. And generation after generation, we convince ourselves somehow, if there were just more education or just a better justice system or or better cultural leadership, then all this brutality would be erased. Well, this passage doesn't allow us to be so naive. There is evil in this world. And it tries to stamp out God's purposes, but it cannot stop them, even if the collateral damage is horrific. And how might the death of those other baby boys have weighed on Mary and Joseph, even on Jesus as he was older? I mean, it wasn't their fault, and yet in some sense their presence there had brought it about. I've often wondered, what did those parents in Bethlehem think? Would it have been harder or easier for them to look to Jesus because of what they'd experienced? Would they have blamed him? How do we think about the senseless destruction in this world? Maybe you've seen the wreckage of evil in your own life or even among your own loved ones. Why couldn't the plan of God that led Jesus to safety have also protected those others from dying prematurely? Why couldn't the plan of God that has preserved you to this day and led you to life in Christ have also saved others? These are questions that Scripture allows us to ask but doesn't directly answer. What we are meant to see, though, is that Jesus entered into such a tragic world. And now is the time when the ruler of this world rages against the Lord's anointed one and against his people. But the rightful king Jesus did escape and is putting injustice to an end forever. There is real harm caused by Satan. The stakes are very, very high. But we don't need to despair or be afraid. His rage we can endure, for lo, his doom is sure. One little word shall fell him. This baby boy that escaped Herod's clutches was destined to displace all of this world's usurper kings. Not only the Herods and the Stalins and the drug lords and designers of a culture of death, but the one usurper behind them all. And we'll see the start of that battle in chapter 4. And we'll see the decisive victory in chapters 27 and 28 but still we await the final nail in Satan's coffin, which comes on that last day when Jesus returns not as a child, but as the warrior king. So let these Bethlehem tragedies that you may have seen also, let them not play into Satan's designs by you growing numb to God, but rather grow angry at Satan, that usurper ruler of the earth, And trust in the final victory that is coming in Jesus. So the response is trust and hope and pleading for that day to come quickly. But the proper response is also mourning. Verse 17 invites us to see how all of scripture laments these tragedies. Then was fulfilled what was spoken by the prophet Jeremiah. A voice was heard in Ramah, weeping and loud lamentation. Rachel weeping for her children. She refused to be comforted because they are no more. To understand what Matthew is saying with this quotation from Jeremiah 31, we first have to understand what Jeremiah was saying in his own context. In chapter 31, he was predicting that the people were going to be sent into exile. And Ramah was six miles north of Jerusalem. 
In Jeremiah 40, we learned that the captives actually did go through Ramah. It was used as a staging point by the Babylonian captain. He would, he would bring the people there and sort of organize them to be sent off into exile. So certainly a, a place associated with sadness, right? There was all so much death involved in the conquest of Jerusalem, and now these survivors are being carted off to live the rest of their life in a strange land. So... Jeremiah pictures one of the ancient matriarchs of Israel, Rachel, weeping from her tomb. Rachel was buried on the way to Bethlehem, near the border of Benjamin, which would have been close to Ramah. So there's this powerful image of a mother of the whole nation weeping from her tomb as her distant children are being taken out of the land of promise. And in the generations after Jeremiah, then Rachel would become the personification of all the grieving mothers of Israel. You can imagine this picture of a, of a woman who's just totally distraught, just pushing off any reassuring hand because she simply refuses to be comforted. And that is too often the result when Satan rages against God's purposes. But these words aren't only an expression of mourning. Just like the quote from Hosea in verse 15 led us to see something about Jesus' mission, so also this quote from Jeremiah does the same. Because the main point of Jeremiah 31 actually is not the weeping, but rather that God will restore the people after the sorrow and draw them into a new covenant, a new relationship defined by greater and unbreakable promises, and that is exactly what Jesus came to do. So kind of implied by this quotation is, watch what's about to unfold. Here is the time of Rachel's weeping, but soon will come the joyful ingathering of God's people. And if you're weeping from a tragedy today, first, God affirms the rightness of that weeping. But also look up to see the one who restores after the weeping. Jesus has come to heal and to restore. So his family has been hunted. He's lived as a refugee. And finally, in our third section, we see that Jesus' family goes into a more permanent hiding. Herod the Great died. Uh, Joseph receives a third dream in which he's told, rise, take the child and his mother and go to the land of Israel for those who sought the child's life are dead. Now this language is actually really similar to Exodus 4.19 where Moses was told, Go back to Egypt, for all the men who are seeking your life are dead. So again, we see that Jesus is walking in the pattern of the previous deliverer. He is the greater Moses. And we're going to see that theme unfold even more in a few chapters. So that's good. Jesus can return to the land. And it seems like that might have initially meant Bethlehem. It seems like that was Joseph's idea. I mean, even when the Magi came to visit, they were living in a house, verse 11 tells us. So maybe they had decided, you know, Judea is really the place where the king of Israel should grow up, close to, to Jerusalem, right in the, the thick of it. Or maybe they had said, you know, this whole scandal about the virgin birth, it might just be easier for, for Jesus if we live somewhere else while he's young. Whatever the case, it seems like they were planning to live in Judea, but uh, they had to change their plans again. We know from history that Herod made a last-minute change to his will. And he actually divided his kingdom into two. And he gave one part to, to, to uh, two different sons. So Archelaus ruled Judea. And he was cruel and violent like his father. 
he, he wasn't as smart as his father, so the, the Romans would actually replace him after just a few years, but uh, he did a lot of damage there for a while. Herod Antipas ruled over Galilee, and he was generally more stable, though by no means a godly ruler. He's the Herod that we'll read about later during Jesus' ministry. He was still there in Galilee. Um, so in another dream, Joseph is warned not to settle in Judea, where Archelaus is going to continue a reign of terror. Instead, he returns to Nazareth. We know from Luke that at least Mary was initially from Nazareth. Maybe Joseph was too. And Nazareth is pretty much the last place anyone would look for a king of Israel. That's good because Jesus would be safe, right? But that's also bad because how could Jesus be recognized if he was from such a place? One Bible scholar explains that even an impeccably Jewish Galilean who walked into first century Jerusalem was not among his own people. He was as much a foreigner as an Irishman in London or a Texan in New York. His accent would immediately mark him out as not one of us and all of the communal prejudice of the supposedly superior culture of the capital city would be against his claim to be heard even as a prophet let alone as the Messiah, a title which, as everyone knew, belonged to Judea. So let me pause here and just say, if you've ever been looked down upon because of your background, cultural, educational, racial, economic, if you've faced prejudice, or if you've ever felt trapped in surroundings that seem to greatly limit you, Jesus knows what you feel. Those are the very circumstances that God the Father ordained for Jesus to come from as a Galilean. And that was purposeful because you need to know that Jesus came for you. But for Matthew's first readers, so the bulk of Jewish people who who sincerely had to ask, can anything good come from Nazareth? He includes another fulfillment statement here in verse 23 to show that, yes, this was very much in line with God's plan. It says, and he went and lived in a city called Nazareth so that what was spoken by the prophets might be fulfilled, that he would be called a Nazarene. Well, that's cool, we might think. Prophecy fulfilled. There's a problem, though. No prophecy worded like that even exists in the Old Testament. So this last fulfillment is the hardest to understand, but I think the best way to read it is as a reference to Isaiah 11, which is all about the righteous reign of the branch. Verse 1 of Isaiah 11 says, There shall come forth a shoot from the stump of Jesse, and a branch from his roots shall bear fruit. It's a prophecy about the Davidic king, about the Messiah. These verses continue... In Isaiah 11, they go on to say glorious things about the Messiah. So this is a very well-known passage. The rabbis between Isaiah's time and Jesus' time studied this in and out. So the branch was a very well-known concept. But because the the connection is a little difficult to see, I'm going to use an analogy. Okay? Imagine that there was some prophecy that from the stump of Lincoln a branch would emerge, an even greater president would arise. Well, first of all, this is impossible because unlike Jesse and and King David, Abraham Lincoln's descendants have all died out. I think the last one died in the 60s. But let's pretend that one line was overlooked 
And then you discover that in the town of Lincoln, Springfield, Illinois, a child from that line has been born amid some strange happenings. But then the corrupt politicians of Illinois are are trying to harm that family. So they flee to Canada. Probably nothing's going to come of it now, right? This isn't the child we were looking for. He's he's gone. Um, Not exactly the fruitful branch. Not exactly a rising king or president. Well, hold on, though. The family shows up again, actually where the parents were first from, a small and obscure town called Branchburg, New Jersey. Now, Branchburg has absolutely no connection to the prophecy. In fact, it's not even named for a tree branch. It's, it's named for the branch of a river. But the similarity is just uncanny enough to suggest that something big and unstoppable is happening. And that is how Matthew is framing the move to Nazareth here. So Nazareth is a tiny town. It's known for nothing. It's not near the action at all. Its name doesn't mean branch, but it does sound like the Hebrew word for branch. So with this play on words, we're reminded that even the names of small towns can be part of God's plans to comfort and reassure his people that deliverance is on the way even if it seems obscure at present. So through these three action sequences, we've seen the sun on the run. And even though we might think that, well, these sorts of narrow escapes and run-ins with peril, hiding out in Egypt and in Galilee, that, that kind of discredits a rising hero. Yet we're reminded that Everything in young Jesus' tumultuous life was orchestrated to fulfill the ancient promises, to foreshadow God's purposes coming to completion, to fill in and to perfect the story of Israel through the life of its true representative. And so we're invited to find our own story within him as well. You know, it's the shadow of Herod that kind of ties these three stories about Jesus together. And the shadow of Satan's schemes looms over our narratives as well. I don't know how that's impacted each of you or the people around you. But the wreckage of violence and chaos can point us to what the evil one is so desperately trying to stop. The rise of the cosmic king in our hearts and in all nations. So in this passage, note how God the Father guides and protects his true son. And then take heart that in Christ, the same is true for you. You don't have to be afraid of tragedy, loss, change, poverty, obscurity, enemies. Because Jesus is the end of the story and he makes good on all of God's promises. And even in his childhood, we see that Jesus came to identify with us in our terror and turbulence all the way to the cross so that in him we might find God's sovereign protection. Let's pray. Lord, I don't know where each person is today. Uh, If anyone feels threatened today or displaced or compromised by the powers of this world, Lord, help us to realize that we are part of a much bigger story and the main character is not us, it's Jesus. Help us to find in Jesus our champion, the one who has traveled these paths before us and and trusted and rested 
in you every step of the way. Give us eyes for anyone around us who might be intimidated by the evil one. Lord, we're not, we're not angels who are sent to them in dreams, but as your messengers, we do ask that you would use us in the lives of others to point them to the guidance and the security that's found in Christ alone. We ask this so that everyone would know who the king really is. Amen.